It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! <laughs> well, <laughs> we're having a fresh start. We are. After uh, you've been away. Yeah, we're, we're back reunited yes. in the attic. It feels like ages. Yeah, I don't, I don't know think why it's that, that was. Long. It was only a week, wasn't it, yeah. I was away. But we were, you know, we were... We time were goes so slowly when you're away. I know. If you think time went slowly for you, yeah. I, I filled my time by watching some of your old Labour Party conference speeches. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah, that's how much I was missing you. Yeah. So you were in Salford because you were doing six music. Yes. Did, did you, like, eat on your own in the evening? Yeah, I love going to a restaurant on my own. Yeah. See, I'm totally the opposite. I absolutely hate it. It's like my definition of sort of, you know, oh, my God. So what is uncomfortable about it to you? Well, it just sort of makes me feel incredibly lonely. Aha. Uh-huh. Generally, I love taking myself for dinner. The only time I don't like doing yeah. it is on a Friday night or a Saturday night because I think it ruins the dining experience for other people in the restaurant in that they'd be looking at me and think, oh, look at that sad guy out on his own. It's really ruining the atmosphere. It's but killing you don't, the mood. But you like it being on your own. Yeah, yeah. Take a book or a newspaper or whatever. Yeah. yeah how interesting. Yeah. It's just we're very different, aren't we? Do you go to the cinema on your own then? Yeah, like you know, I, c- I can do those things. I mean, I, it's I because it's sort of introvert extrovert thing, isn't it? You quite like your own company. I do. I mean, like given the choice, I'd do these things with my wife. But if she's yeah. not around, I'll. I'll um, you're I'll the most interesting good. person you know, is what you're saying. No, I'm saying she's the most interesting oh, person I know. But if she's not around, yeah, and you're not returning my calls, yeah. then you know I'm happy to take myself out. It's really interesting, yeah. isn't it? It's a sort of difference. Yeah, and and it's the case for being an introvert actually. Mm, I was unable to go to something last night, but you. You were you were out raving. I was representing you at the Pink News Awards, yeah. where I'm cra- proud to say, and I'm clutching in my sweaty palm the Pink News Broadcast Award, which Let, we let's hear it. Let's hear the thud. It's a weighty award, isn't it? Uh, which that was, is a substantial award. It is. We we won it with Will Young. Uh, he won it for Homo Sapiens, his podcast. We won it for our episode on trans issues. Uh, I, I was particularly proud of the interview we did with the father of a trans child on that episode. Yeah, so it was very nice to be recognised. The thing I said actually to Simon Fanshawe, you know, who's one of the founders of Stonewall, because they received a sort of Lifetime Achievement Award from actually from Tony Blair, is in a world where lots of things seem like they're getting worse, you are reminded when you go to that event about the progress has been made. And sure, there's lots more progress that needs to be made, but it is quite a good reminder of... See how far, how, how how far we've, we've come. come. Yeah. You know, and lots of sort of heroes and heroines of the kind of movement were there. People like Chris Smith, you know, Lord Chris Smith, who's the first MP to come out and all of that. So it was really, it was really good and uplifting. 
But I wasn't quite the same without you. Oh, you're just saying that. No, I'm serious. My travel tavern in Salford wasn't quite the same without you. I mean, uh, I, I, there were twin beds I invited out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you made your excuses. I was with George Ezra. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so what are we talking about this week then? So we are talking about employee share ownership. And whether that can make a difference to our economy, uh, this is in the news because John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor, has put forward a proposal for a 10% stake for workers in the economy, sort of collectively owned. We're going to be talking about that proposal. Why are we interested in employee share ownership? What are the different types of employee share ownership? Uh, and all that jazz. If you were doing this in another European country, you wouldn't be thinking this yeah. was a sort of wacky out there idea. Yeah, I mean, I think it's obviously a radical yeah. idea for Britain, but uh, it'd be interesting to talk about it. Oh, and we're joined by a comedian who's going to be pitching us some ideas, uh, which could be reasons to be cheerful. Hayley Ellis Good. is going to be coming on. What's your reason to be cheerful? It's a biggie. Yep. So this podcast essentially is about big ideas. Yes. Uh, you know, you, you, you can fall into your orthodoxies and yes. traditions. I feel you're going to lay out a big this, idea. This is a yeah. big idea. Pledge one this, in the this Jeffocracy. Is, this is huge. I mean, yeah. it's changed my life yeah. and I hope it changes other people's. Do you enjoy filling the dishwasher? Uh, I, yeah. I mean, I, I feel satisfied when the dirty stuff is out of the way. But what, what is the most infuriating thing about it? When it gets cleaned. No, it's when the little light comes on that says add salt. Yeah, that's really It's tedious because you, you get the yeah. salt and sort of tipping yeah. it into the hole is never yeah, right and, and it goes everywhere. Really yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, this is infuriating me for some time. Yeah. I've done some research on it and I found online some dishwasher salt that comes in. Can you think of the shape of the shard in yes. London, sort of like yes. a long pyramid? Yes. You then cut the top off yes. and you can pour it in. Oh, I see. What do you oh, mean I, thought, I see? I mean, this is I a big idea. Gonna, I thought it was going to be like the sort of, you know, sort of Soyuz rocket sort of thing where you kind <laughs> of, you know, you kind of just put the whole thing in. Oh, do you know yeah. what I mean? And then it sort of evaporates. No. Now now you're making me feel like my reason to be cheerful is underwhelming. It's changed no, my life. No, it's good. So what? So basically, does salt doesn't go everywhere. Exactly, yeah. It's an easy way of okay, getting my salt confession into is, My yeah. confession is I'm the, much the best person in the household at putting stuff in the dishwasher mm. and emptying it, or mm. at least I think so. But I'm very bad at the salt thing. I basically ignore the salt indicator. I'm going to give you a box of this salt. Yeah, I, do, I, I just sort of don't. I, for the, exactly the reasons you set out, it goes, goes everywhere, that weird thing that's like, stuff seems to come out of it like a sort of like a kind of geezer you know what I mean when you open the yeah, weird yeah. thingy capsule you know do you find I'm guessing this is true of you as a, as a, I mean it's quite a, satisfying yeah. when the light goes off oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. you put enough salt in to get the light off do you find this is true of me and I'm sure it'd be true of you as well when you do the washing up you're not in the dishwasher just regular washing up do you feel you get more wet than other people yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? Definitely. Actually, there's one thing that really annoys me, which is when <laughs> when people put stuff in the dishwasher, pots and pans, with no hope of it being clean, naming no names. Uh, um, uh, someone I'm married to, and it's basically it's never going to get cleaned mm. because it's like a little really dirty pot. Mm. But it's like put it in the dishwasher, and so it then comes and then it's out no longer dirty. A I mean, I have yeah. many, many, many more faults. I should sort of say, but anyway. You, I mean, I've got the whole host of stuff I can say about this, as you can tell. <laughs> what's, uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that uh, I recently went to see Measure for Measure, which is directed by my friend Josie Rourke, uh, Shakespeare play, obviously. I didn't know it very well. Uh, two things about it. One, it's amazing that something written 400 and something years ago can speak so directly to sort of me too. I mean, the basic plot is 
about a ruler who leaves leaves a sort of regent type person in charge. Uh, says you've really got to enforce the laws. Somebody is uh, threatened with execution for adultery, and the question is then sort of what happens. And it ends up it doesn't end up, but because I'm not spoiler alert, but basically his sister, if his sister has an affair with the regent bloke, um, has sex with the regent bloke, then he'll get off. And it's sort of what flows. It speaks sort of to me too in like a very direct way. That very interesting. All the the first half is the play. Second half is all is the play again, but with the gender roles reversed. And it's still running. It's still running at the Donmar Warehouse. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined now by Christine Berry, who is fellow of the Next System Project and author of a forthcoming book, uh, People Get Ready, which deals with some of these issues. And Matt Lawrence, Senior Research Fellow at IPPR and co-author of a New Economics Foundation report on these ownership issues. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Christine, why don't we start with you? We're obviously going to come on to talk about the specifics around employee ownership, but do you want to set the, the wider context for us, which is, you know, why might we be interested in these issues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think employee ownership is a really important part of a bigger agenda that's emerging on the left right now about economic democracy, which basically means kind of replacing economic structures that are based on a market logic of one pound, one vote. Um, with structures that are based on a democratic logic, based on one person, one vote, you know, right across the economy. Um, And this is kind of being talked about in in some spheres on the left as the institutional turn. I have a lot of love for the people who came up with that term. Sounds like one of these terrible, incomprehensible phrases that I'd come up with. (laughs) From from the people who brought you predistribution. So I think, well, maybe a bit like predistribution, you said it, not me, but um, the, the analysis... Part of the like, highway code, I'm taking yeah. an institutional turn. <laughs> I think the analysis is absolutely spot on and deserves every bit of the attention it's getting. I'm not a huge super fan of the term for precisely the reasons that you've said. I think it makes it sound kind of a bit wonky, a bit academic, whereas actually I think this is kind of the most exciting thing to to happen on the left for certainly in my political lifetime, right? This is about the wholesale transformation of the structures of the economy to take power and wealth and our common resources and put them in the hands of of ordinary people. Employee ownership is is part of that. It's not the only part of it, but it's a really important part of it. Can I just ask you, what's the relationship between this and something that was from some years ago but but was sort of in vogue after a book by Will Hutton called The State We're In, which is the sort of stakeholder capitalism not shareholder capitalism that sounds like more jargon but but that's the idea that workers you know have as much of a sort of engagement and and role in what companies should be doing as shareholders is this like when david cameron was going on about john lewis was that just a load of hot air it was sort of around that time yeah i mean i think you know there's a distinction between proposals which are really about trying to get stakeholders more involved in the existing model of shareholder capitalism so like i would actually put workers on boards in this category right so you're not really messing with the fundamental structure of shareholder ownership but you're saying within that we're going to make some workers executive directors of those companies so that they have the ability to shape it and similarly i think there there were like quite a lot of debates maybe five or ten years ago about the idea that you should change company law so that companies had a duty not just to their shareholders but to to wider stakeholders and wider society and I think that's all great, but I think the, the employee ownership agenda as part of a kind of wider picture about how we kind of transition to 
more cooperative democratic models of ownership is kind of more radical because it's really about saying that model of shareholder ownership in itself is kind of broken and needs to be replaced. So I think what's clever about the inclusive ownership fund proposal is that it's sort of guerrilla tactic for transforming companies that are based on that kind of shareholder logic of um, one share, one vote into democratic structures. That's how I see the distinction. I think it's about really, are you kind of trying to take the existing structures, shareholder and companies and so on, and change the law to kind of give them a bit of a mandate to serve a wider range of people? Or are you really trying to replace those structures with something that, that fundamentally distributes ownership and power more widely? And that's kind of baked in and wired into the way that it does things. Can you, t- you talk a bit more about why that model is broken? Is it because the shareholders have got too much power, that companies are sort of thinking short term about being able to deliver dividends and they're not sort of planning companies properly and maybe the right kind of thought isn't given to the workers adding value to that company? Is that, does that sort of summarise why it's broken? I think it's one reason that it's broken. It's not the only reason. So I think that that kind of shareholder value mentality that you identify as a really big problem and you know I used to work just after the financial crisis in a a charity that campaigned on corporate governance and this was kind of was becoming a big concern then that people were kind of starting to realize that there'd been this shift towards a shareholder value mentality where all that matters was kind of maximizing that quarter share price so you know you have a small number of big asset managers firms like BlackRock who maybe in theory are managing those shares on behalf of pension funds on behalf of insurance companies that ultimately represent ordinary people and their savings but in reality are kind of riddled with conflicts of interest massively short term only focused on the share price and and totally incapable of kind of stewarding those companies for the good of people and the planet and that you know that's a kind of symptom of an, an economy that's become built on wealth extraction rather than wealth creation right it's this zero sum game of the share isn't a sort of stake in a company and its prosperity over the long term. It's first and foremost, it's a financial asset that you can buy and sell and you can make some money if you can buy it low and sell it high. And that's something that you do, you know, it's a zero sum game. It happens at the expense of whoever's on the other end of that transaction. It doesn't create any new wealth. And I think that has created massive problems, you know, across the economy from the banking crisis, right? So RBS was the darling of the stock markets when it was expanding massively and taking on risk because its share price was through the roof. It was posting massive return on equity figures. It's also kind of causing underinvestment. So there was a US survey a few years ago where I think 78% of chief financial officers of big US firms said that they wouldn't make a positive long-term investment if it had a negative impact on their next quarterly results because they were afraid of the reaction from shareholders. I was recently working on a report on the pharmaceutical sector for a fantastic campaign called Just Treatment. And I found out, which genuinely shocked me, um, that in the pharmaceutical sector, so between 2006 and 2015, the biggest 18 pharmaceutical firms in the US spent $261 billion buying back their own shares, which is something that they purely do to artificially boost the price of those shares. Again, it doesn't create any new wealth. And that's more than half of what they spent on research and development. So that is a really big problem, this kind of shareholder value mentality. But equally, I think it is important to recognise that there's a strand of thought that says, well, if only shareholders could be more responsible and more long termist and we could encourage them to take an interest in what companies are doing and, you know, to really exercise their rights responsibly, you would solve that problem. And I think, again, the, the analysis behind ideas like employee ownership is to say, well, no, actually, the fact that we've got this economy that's so dominated by shareholder ownership is fundamentally problematic in a deeper way um, and represents this kind of one pound one vote rather than one person one vote 
system and, and logic, you know, that we were told we were going to have a share-owning democracy where everybody was going to have a stake in the economy, not as a citizen, but as a shareholder or a homeowner or a consumer or whatever. And that would kind of distribute power down to everybody. But of course, that's not really what happened because the logic of the market is that you buy and sell and the people with the most ability to buy in the market, i.e. the wealthiest, can own and control more and more of the assets. And so wealth and power kind of systematically flows upwards rather than downwards. And that's essentially what's happened, right? It's happened in the property market. It happened with privatisation, Telsid, everyone was... Uh, supposed to have a stake in British gas. Now only 5% of those shares are owned by individuals. You know, it's not an accident that throughout our economy, we've got this concentration of wealth and power. And that's why I think we need to look deeper than just getting shareholders to be better. We need to fundamentally transform those ownership structures to ones that really are kind of democratic, that give people a stake in firms that are the most likely to steward it well, i.e. kind of the, the workers or people who are you know creating the wealth within that firm and that do that on a kind of on genuinely equal democratic basis rather than this kind of pseudo democratic shareholder democracy which is really just the rule of the wealthiest that that's incredibly helpful setting the background matt talk to us about the proposal that john mcdonnell has made because this obviously got a lot of attention at the labor party conference tell us a little bit about the proposal you did some of the work in this independent report, which maybe informs some of the thinking, which is why it's great that you're here. So, so talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So McDonald's report flows out of some of the arguments that Christine was making, which is that how a company is owned and in whose interest really structures how it operates and how the benefits are distributed. And clearly in the UK and in many other advanced economies, we have models of corporate ownership which are very concentrated, they're extractive, and they have very heavy burdens placed on society and particularly environmental limits in particular. And so what this initiative, this policy is trying to do is actually trying to not just tinker around the edges, but say actually ownership fundamentally structures the economy and power within that. And what we need to do is make those who actually are at the coalface of creating wealth, as Christine said, those you know who are committed every day in work to generating value should have more of a sort of stake and a say and a durable voice in the governance of economic enterprises and businesses in companies. And so what the proposal says is that firms with 250 employees or more, so large firms, that's less than 1% of all companies, but almost half the uh, employment numbers. They would be required to establish an inclusive ownership fund, which would be a permanent locked fund. So it couldn't be sold, it couldn't be abolished, um, which over time, uh, companies would be required to issue equity, so sort of the value of the firm, into this fund. So the rate that McDonald announced was 1% a year would have to be transferred up to a maximum of 10%. And that fund would then have voting and control rights, so it would have a say on governance, on strategy, on direct pay, and a whole range of corporate governance issues. But also, crucially, it would have a claim on the dividends created by the wealth created by the firm. And Labour have said that um, workers at up to £500 a year would be able to sort of each have an individual claim on that. But I think there's, you know, there's questions around, should that be higher? Should it be more ambitious? Should it be less ambitious? But I think the basic principle of it is that ownership fundamentally matters. The model we have today, wealth and power flows upwards and outwards very often out of the UK and often sort of offshore havens, frankly. And actually, we need an institutional turn, although it is a, you know, it's an ugly phrase, but sort of essentially institutions of economic democracy that redirect power and control towards those who create it, which are ordinary workers and society as a whole. And because Christine sort of made reference to this, how is this different in terms of the power that it might give to the workers 
than having, I think John McDonnell also proposed this, one third of the board being workers. So this is this is share ownership, not just being on the board. Is that That's materially different. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. So first of all, compared to uh, employees on boards, which I think is a useful reform, but it's very much just a pragmatic working within sort of the system as we have it uh, reform. But this is different in a couple of ways. Firstly, it does create material direct benefits. So up to £500 a year, you know, it could be higher, could be sort of, you know, there, there's a debate around that. But that is a material benefit. So in some ways, it's a, a little bit more like something like right to buy and the fact which sort of introduced sort of very substantial material benefits to a core political constituency and managed to detach sort of a group in society away from potentially like typically Labour voting households towards the Conservative bloc. And in some ways, because the material benefits attached to it, this policy could be something that sort of materially people say, oh, actually, you know, I am getting significantly more money into my household, into my account each year as a result of a more democratic economy. So there's a material stake there that is different to workers on boards. And I think fundamentally it's about sort of collective agency, collective economic and democratic power. So whereas workers on boards, there's, you know, there would be three of them potentially or a third, up to a third, I believe the proposal is. And, you know, they would have some say, but in some ways they would be working within sort of the system as it operates, as Christine said. Whereas this is more about saying actually sort of 10% potentially more depending on how the sort of policy develops over time which would be a very substantial the largest typical sort of owner of a company is roughly 5% that's normally the biggest individual holding in the FTSE so 10% would mean that the collective worker block would, would have, have a lot of control would have a lot of control rights you know and that gives you a lot of corporate governance rights over and above just having one or two representatives of directors on the board what's the reaction of business been so it's been mixed, I think, is, is fair to say. I think what's interesting about this policy, it can, it can kind of speak to very different reactions depending on sort of your prejudices or preconceived notions. So on the one hand, you know, you have seen some um, members of the business community saying this is confiscation, it's um, theft of property. Although it should be noted there are plenty of requirements on corporations to dilute or give up certain sort of dividends or rights already. You know, taxation is one example. But you can also sort of see it as an example of actually you know, going back to your stakeholder capitalism, but I think this is an institution that's quite different to that. But nonetheless, in some ways, you can sell it as, look, there's plenty of evidence that if you give people more of a stake in the place they work, if you give more of a say to people in the wealth that they help generate, that leads to more equitable, more productive firms over the long term. So frankly, if sort of British capitalism was a bit more progressive, potentially, they could see in this sort of a partnership to make a more democratic and better form of economy in the long run. I think there are some sort of deep structural challenges here between the interests of certain sex society and the majority in this policy. But I do think there's potential there for sort of progressive businesses and enterprises that are interested in creating real value and shared value to find that in this a real ally for creating that type of economy. And, and what is what is the evidence of that? What is from around the world? Which countries do this well? So there's plenty of evidence from a whole range of different types of economies, including in the UK, that where workers have a genuine stake and a say, they typically outperform sort of companies where they have limited rights, where they don't really have a sort of stake in the sort of material success of the company. So for example, in the UK, and these are slightly different to what the proposal is, but employee-owned firms, so firms that are wholly owned by 
their employees. They typically tend to be a bit smaller than the companies we're talking about in this proposal. Is it? I know this is com- be compulsory, but is it like Jeff mentioned a lot, John Lewis earlier? It's got elements of John it, Lewis. It's definitely got elements of it. So John Lewis has a locked trust which holds one hundred percent of the sort of company's right. equity locked in that trust, and but and through that, and the workers elect the management and so it, on. Exactly, and they have you know dividend rights. Yeah. Essentially, they sort of you know, they get workers bonuses each year. They have rights in terms of the management of John Lewis. So it's not completely different. I mean, I know, it's as I say, it's compulsory, but it's not completely different from that, is it? There, I think there's lots of similarities. Right. And again, I mean, it depends how you want to frame it and pitch it, and it depends how ambitious and how expansive this policy is or becomes or is watered down. I think that's the beauty of it. It can be scaled up and scaled down. But I think at its most ambitious, it really is a mechanism alongside a series of other steps that can really democratise the economy. And so something I was thinking about, so what is to stop companies? So say the maximum dividend was £500 a year, which it is in John McDonald's plan. What's to stop companies sort of shaving that off wage increases? Or, or is the dividend sort of not as important as the principle of it? So I think the principle of it is very important around a sort of deep structural shift in control yeah. and power, but I do think the material thing uh, matters as well. And so there's, I'd say there's a couple of things. Firstly, if workers do have substantial sort of corporate governance control rights within the firm, it's unlikely that they're going to sort of consistently pass through strategies which rely on undercutting wages. So that's one sort of institutional block you can insert into it. Second of all, I think if you look to somewhere like France, which has a profit-sharing scheme for firms with more than 50 employees or more, so much sort of bigger number of, sort of firms caught by this, they have legal mechanisms to stop the sort of profit share being based on reducing wages. So there are ways, you, you know, you have to think through this policy carefully and it's by Is no means... Is the French system similar or...? It, it's similar to an extent. It's essentially firms with 50 or, um, employees or more uh, democratically agree a profit share at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year if that sort of target is hit then the sort of share is right. equitably distributed um, across the uh, company. It was introduced by Charles de Gaulle so you know there are elements right. of the sort of centre-right tradition yeah. in France I guess that are attached to this. Um, I guess the third thing would be that I mean, it is really important to stress this and Christine's done it already but this has to be seen in the context not just of a one-off intervention, but of a part of a broader story of democratising power, wealth and control. And one of those would obviously be strengthening of collective bargaining rights, so strengthening the right of average workers to come together and have more of a stake and a say around setting and paying conditions. And so if you have a complement of collective bargaining to accompany an inclusive ownership fund, that's a double lock that's going to make it quite unlikely that firms would push down on wages to supplement your dividend. And one thing that's attracted controversy in this, and in a way goes beyond employee ownership, is that, and correct me if I go wrong here, but that above £500, Labour has said that the money would go to the Exchequer. Is that is that right? Above £500 of dividends? Absolutely. So what they've done is say above £500, you would shift it into yeah. essentially a social dividend to be yeah. spent on public infrastructure, yeah. so social needs. And the reason for that, although that is a point of contestation, is because there are very significant variations in profit by different types of sector, and so if you had a sort of if you didn't have a cap at all, this this policy could see you know workers in the financial sector or workers in the manufacturing sector, which is very capital intensive, sort of having bonuses of five thousand pounds a well, year. That's quite good, but at the moment the bonuses go to the whiz kids in the city. Well, it's, it's exactly in some ways you could yeah, so you could say that. But I mean, I guess what you want to make sure is that sort of low margin sectors like retail right. with sort of, you know your average employee is sort of right. significantly lower paid than I the see. average financial sector worker you don't want to introduce a policy which 
sort of means the whiz kids, although how exactly yeah. whizzy they are. Yeah. Is, is a, <laughs> I use whiz kids in inverted commas. Yeah. <laughs> um, you so you want to sort of make sure that it's it's a sort of it's a policy for economic convergence and democracy, not divergence and fragmentation. Now, do, Jeff is a big Swedophile, um, as am I, sort of. This was talked about, wasn't it, in Sweden in the 1980s, I think, or 1970s and 80s, by somebody called Rudolf Meidner, um, the Meidner Plan. And it sort of started off as an elephant and became a mouse, as far as I understand it. Yes, yeah, so it, it did to an extent, but the fact it became a mouse shows that this is something that can be implemented. Right. But there is important lessons in that story because... It was watered down to such an extent that there wasn't enough of a constituency behind it to say, actually, we've got real benefits. Right. It's designed quite differently to this proposal um, and sort of a, won't go into the boring yeah. details and is related to the specific nature of the Swedish economy at the time. And I think, I mean, one thing that's worth pointing out is it did mobilise very powerful um, people. So there's, there's, a, there's a book on, to go behind the curtain, there's a book on ABBA I can see in the studio and ABBA, against ABBA famously campaigned against really? the, wow. the the Maidner plan. Um, wow! And they saw money, it money, a, money. Exactly, uh, exactly, uh, exactly. In a rich man's world, whereas yeah, it's exactly. 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 This is about it was Waterloo. Uh, um, gosh, so why did they campaign against it? Well, because the world, you know, they wanted a rich man's world where the winner, you know, did take it all. Right. And this was an institution to say, no, actually, wealth is socially created. And the sort of the market shared extractive model just isn't compatible with a world of so one person one vote and a world in which wealth is created by all of us and we should all have a much deeper, more sort of sincere claim and stake in the creation of wealth and its distribution. So something that's common in America, especially, I think, is employees being given stock being given shares in the company to do with what they will as part of their, their benefits as an employee. Why why is this better than that? I think that's a really important question, something really important to understand that kind of giving employees shares or kind of stock options as part of their benefits package in and of itself, you know, isn't particularly a radical proposition, right? Because the employees in that scenario become individual shareholders on the same basis as any other individual shareholder. They can exercise those rights individually if they choose, which is basically nil, right, as an individual shareholder in a massive global company uh, in terms of governance rights that that's basically negligible and they can buy and sell those shares then you know as they choose in the future whereas this is really fundamentally different from that this is about creating a single fund that's kind of uh, operated collectively on behalf of all the workers in the firm at that time you know it distributes its dividends equally to all of those workers my understanding is regardless of their salary although Matt can clarify this um you know, so everybody in that firm has effectively an equal stake in the fund. And once the shares are in the fund, they can't then be bought and sold. So it's basically a vehicle for within a sort of institution that operates based on market logic and shareholder logic and, you know, shares that can be bought and sold. Within that, you're sort of creating a little enclave that does operate on democratic principles, on the principle of one person, one vote, and you're sort of taking it outside of the market a bit. And that's really fundamentally different from an employee stock ownership plan. How do you think a firm, and this is maybe an unfair question, but how do you think a firm 
would run differently if 10% of it was owned by the workers, Christine? Because I know there's been a big issue about the, the share of a company's total revenue that goes to wages that's fallen over time and more of it's going into profits. Would would that change? Would the conditions for the workers change? I mean, in a way, I'm inviting you to speculate, but also to say what you think would be better about the outcomes. Mm. I mean, well, Matt may be able to say more about the empirical evidence that there is on this in terms of worker ownership. But I suppose the idea is that if you're putting power in the hands of people who have an immediate direct stake in what the firm does and are likely to stick around for a while you know that if if your job depends on a firm's operations you've got a much more real and serious and long-term stake in its success in reality than say kind of BlackRock that may own shares in that company alongside hundreds of thousands of others in a very diversified portfolio of companies that it holds and so in theory at least putting more power in the hands of workers through through these kind of funds ought to tip the balance of, of forces within corporate governance towards kind of more long-term thinking, towards investment in the future, as well as towards kind of a, a better deal for workers, um, more equitable pay ratios and pay settlements within those firms. I think, as Matt says, you know, that has to go alongside other ways that you strengthen the power of workers like collective bargaining. I think one thing that people often don't realise with with shareholder governance actually is just how rare it is for shareholders to even come close to defeating management actually. So like most executive pay packages, no matter how outrageous, get passed with kind of 80-90%, the kinds of majorities that you normally only see in kind of seriously corrupt democracies, right? So I think we shouldn't assume that a 10% stake for workers will automatically mean that they have that kind of almost casting vote that can start to defeat management on a whole load of things. And that's something that needs to be thought about more. But you would hope the fact that they would, you know, in all probability be the largest single shareholder would give them significant clout alongside sort of strengthened trade unions and whatever else to be able to start changing the way that that the company operates away from the sort of extractive shareholder value model and towards the sort of long-term value creation and, and more equitable distribution of that value. Talk about some threats to this, Matt. So one threat is that um, I think when it was initially announced, although I think John McDonald said something slightly different now, it was looked like it was just going to apply to firms that list in Britain uh, or are headquartered in Britain, I beg your pardon, and therefore it would sort of give people an incentive to, to move out of Britain. But I think he's now saying it will apply to anyone who operates here. Yeah, exactly. So I think the plan is to apply for all companies yeah. that operate here with 250 and is that, as you understand more. that, is that legally possible, is it? I mean, I think there definitely are legal and technical challenges yeah. to work through. And I think, you know, that's, you know, it, it, there's lots of work to be done yeah. on this policy. I think that's fair to flag that. But I think that's partly because this is a policy which is trying to build and prefigure a different type of economy. Mm. So that's where I think it is a transitional type of mechanism when in some ways it's appeal. And so it obviously does come up against sort of laws and companies law around shareholder primacy putting share sort of external shareholders first dilution of shares so there's you know, and exactly so the mechanism at the moment is dilution and that obviously on aggregates of dilutes the wealth so more of shares are issued in other words exactly yeah. and we would be required to issue yeah. shares which hence would sort of mechanically yeah. dilute the wealth of existing shareholders that's a potential so i don't think it's i mean it's a threat in the sense that there could be delisting. I think that needs to be worked through. Quite a lot of companies might sort of threaten, right. but actually, you know, there are reasons what you know the UK still offers quite a lot. So I do think some of that threat is overplayed. But nonetheless, you know, there are sort of issues that this policy has to be worked out through. But I think you know 
from what McDonald has said, clearly they are very open to discussing, talking through, working out the details. But I think the principle of being a transitional policy to begin to shift ownership and control back towards those who help generate and create it is something that they've sort of clearly sort of come down and re-articulated again in his recent interventions. And so I guess the challenge for sort of the broader civil society is to say, well, actually, okay, here's a really interesting opening to try, sort of try and work through a different type of economics and different type of economy that works differently and better for ordinary people. And let's try and fill that gap, um, which I think is the challenge. And I think just on the sort of I think there's also questions of strategy, which is about sort of timing and the pace and the scale. And is 10% in fact almost too low because you want to scale it so there's a material interest that's so substantial that it becomes very hard to abolish. And then you have sort of genuine sort of influence and control rights over and above 10%. So there's a whole variety of questions that need to be thought through. But I think what it does do is it opens up a whole new terrain of debate for progressives in particular. There's obviously been a sort of increase in conversations around ownership centred on the railways, sort of the energy system, uh, energy companies. And I think that's a really important debate. But realistically, we're not going to democratise the economy and really sort of transition to a more just, more ecologically sustainable economy if we just nationalise the railways. We fundamentally have to go after and transform ownership and control of the very big economic units in our of society. For me, it would be part of a two-pronged approach, right? You would have to do this alongside, which is something that Matt's also done lots of work on, um, trying to grow the cooperative sector, right? So measures to uh, increase the power in the economy of sort of fundamentally democratic forms of governance, as well as kind of doing this big flagship proposal to kind of address the, what I suppose you couldn't heights of the economy that we have already. So we've been talking about some of Labour's proposals on this. I mean, either now or in the past, has there been a sort of conservative approach which which delves into these issues? Yeah, I think if you look back, I mean, you'd have to go back a while, but so if you look back to someone like Anthony Eden, Harold Macmillan, there was always a sort of tribute into sort of Tory thinking around sort of broadening ownership, spreading ownership. And of course, you know, that was at least the popular messaging around some of the privatisation deals, although clearly that ended up concentrating and doing the exact reverse of building a share-owning democracy. So there is a sort of dead tradition in some ways of ownership. I think it would be quite distinct. It would be much more individualised. It would be against sort of the collective democratic aspects of the, sort of the funds we've been talking about today. But I do think it's a sort of a problem for British politics as a whole that a wing of the Conservative Party that is interested in trying to broaden ownership even in a particular way that sort of is not necessarily in line with these proposals is now so defunct and it's sort of the dominance of the sort of status quo model of ownership is sort of basically unchallenged. Which is more financial sector-based. More financial, sort of don't really touch the horses, is relatively okay with the world. I mean, it's worth sort of stressing, sort of what the numbers we're talking about is the wealthiest 10% own, I think it's something like 60 to 70% of the nation's financial wealth, which includes shares. Now, pensions wealth is a bit more broadly owned, but actually still you're talking about even through pensions owning companies, which is kind of a bit... Sort of, it's a very weak ownership connection. But even there, you know, the average sort of you know six-year-old man has got a pension pot sort of ten times the size of sort of you know some a, a woman in, of colour in his same age bracket, for example. So I think um you know there's a real problem that the right is kind of given up on pluralistic thoughts around ownership. Christine and Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So what did you think? Well, when we went into this, I wondered if the idea of employee ownership, if, if the big thing about it really was just getting workers' voices heard yeah. at corporate level yeah. and 
you know, having a voice on things like zero hours contracts and executive pay and so on. And I thought maybe that is the real point of it. But having listened to it, um, there's there's something something quite exciting about this as a whole other way of yeah. running running yeah. business and ownership of business. I think that's and it's, right. in a way, it's a much bigger idea than I thought it was. And sometimes with these big ideas, does you think, does that make it less realistic? But it's it's certainly a big one to get excited about, isn't it? If you were in another European country, the, the specific proposal might not sound like what's being done, but it would sound less outlandish. Yeah that there will be some co-run... I mean, it's a form of kind of co-running of a firm, isn't it? Yeah. It's just using doing it by a different method, whereas obviously from the viewpoint of Christine and Matt, just having workers on the board doesn't quite give them the, the muscle that having the ownership does. So I think it's definitely worth pursuing. I think it opens up a whole discussion about what we want firms to be for, how we want them to be run and all of that, which has been sort of off limits for a long time. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let us know what you think about this week's episode. Are you excited by the idea of employee ownership? Have you worked somewhere where there's some form of employee ownership? Can you tell us about how it's worked for you? Um, also, we're always after ideas for future episodes. Maybe you're a Swede. And tell us about the Swedish experience. Yeah, definitely. Maybe maybe you're one of ABBA yeah. listening to this. Yeah. Benny, Bjorn, is exactly. that you? Exactly. Uh, you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can tweet us at cheerfulpodcast, or you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. Uh, this first email uh, says, Hi, Jeff and Ed. I was hoping to get a whoop from Ed whoop. for some super kudos recommending. I've shared the show with a number of people and not thought about them actually following up on my advice, but I recently went to a public sector design meetup looking at a lot of the type of service design and user research that Kat Drew mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, and a new colleague of mine presented the show and especially the episode about being more pirate in front of 20 to 30 people. Wow. I'm not saying that they all promised to download the podcast during our chat, but I thought that was pretty good work numbers-wise, and I'm sure the ripple effect will continue. I wasn't the one that shared in front of everyone, but I'll happily take all the credit for the initial recommendation. And that's somebody who would prefer not to be named, not because they don't want to be associated with the podcast. Well, somewhat. They have a very good reason. They they work in a sort of sensitive area, shall we say. Um, not, not, not for another podcast. No. <laughs> so this one comes from Callum Parrish. And I think the reason I'm reading this one out is that Callum Parrish gets points for having thought it through. And you've got to sort of bear with him and me here. Hi, Ed and Jeff. I had this idea for a long time now. And every time I go over it in my mind, it makes more and more sense. I'm also pleased that someone else had also verified all the thinking here. And he gives a link. And basically, it's a six-day week manifesto. Now, that's not six days working that's six day week as opposed to seven day week of which you'd work 
four days. Now, that would mean that there will be 60 weeks in the year, approximately. But he basically goes into such extraordinary amounts of detail about how much you work, how much holiday you get. You basically have more or less five weeks in a month. Um, now, I mean, I'd say this is ambitious. We <laughs> like ambitious ideas. We like ambitious ideas. It re would require a sort of global movement. Uh, but basically, you get a 12 days holiday more a year because you work four, four days out of six. So it's still the two-day weekend, but only four days working. And does it all work out okay with like the rotations of the Earth and going around the sun and all that stuff? Well, I think it's still the 365 days in the year, you see. So right. it'll be just 60 weeks and... Um, five days. Which day would you get rid of, given the choice? Well, he thinks that it says get rid of Wednesday. First, let's remove Wednesday. <laughs> Good Democratic vote on which date to drop. <laughs> um, we'd have a referendum, a sort of seven, seven permutation yeah. referendum. So anyway, there you are. Anyway, and he also says, P.S. I bumped it dead at Charing Cross Tube Station. I was listening to Reasons to be Cheerful and thought I'd say hi, which was surreal. He was very nice. A lot of people would have just read that for themselves and not felt the need to read yeah. read out on the podcast. Shows, that's a very nice. Shows person. my level of insecurity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jules says, "Dear Jeff and Ed, I'd like to second Catherine Conway on the question of issues to consider. Her suggestion being plastics. Here's why I'd suggest plastics or plastic pollution to be more precise. Starting with the miserable." And it really is miserable and scary. Plastic pollution is now pretty much everywhere. And because it breaks down and in some cases is directly released as tiny microplastics, it's getting in right at the bottom of food chains too. That's scary because microplastics absorb and concentrate surrounding toxins, including persistent organic pollutants like DDT that we banned decades ago, making them up to a million times more toxic than the surrounding seawater. They then concentrate further as they pass up the food chain, so it's not just killing and maiming whales and turtles, it's infiltrating whole ecosystems. But here's the reason to be cheerful. Have you ever seen such a public outburst of energy and concern at an environmental it's issue? It's, it's beyond spectacular. People get plastic pollution. Even climate change-denying uncles and greenie-baiting journalists get plastic pollution. Uh, reducing plastic pollution won't heal all society's ills by any means for sure, but given the popular concern, the political and corporate will that drives and the steps involved, it could heal a lot of them. Cheers, Jules. And I saw this documentary recently with my kids uh, by Liz Bonin. Um, which has been on the BBC, which is really moving and, and sort of quite devastating documentary about plastics. Uh, this one comes from Leslie Foote, and you're going to really love it because it's about the park run. Uh, dear Jeff and Ed, I love your podcast. We've listened since the start. I love the way you take a subject as dull as ditch water and make it even more boring. No, I love the way you take a subject as dull as ditch water and make it fascinating and relevant. Anyway, I heard you mention park run, which I run and regularly volunteer for and have been involved for 10 years now. A few thoughts. There was a recent Guardian feature on Park Run, which concentrated on the economics of volunteering, which is very clever. The founder, Paul Sinton Hewitt, still regularly runs, and you can contact him. If you fancy trying out the best Park Run, please join me at Richmond one Saturday morning at nine. I hope you get to do an episode of Reasons to be Cheerful on Park Run soon. Leslie? I don't think we should do an episode whilst running. Well, I mean, that would just be a lot panting. of panting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, we did try it on the buses. Yeah, and we did it at that time your car broke down When as well. did you last jog? Or run. When did you last sort of break, break <laughs> sort of sort of ten minute, twelve minute mile, twenty minute a, mile? There was a time recently. There's an ice cream parlor around the corner, and I was really keen to get an ice cream, and I realised it was closing. So I sort of jogged the last hundred meters or so. Was it like Sebco? Very much so. Yeah, 
the yeah. Chariots of Fire music yeah, was yeah, playing yeah, in my head yeah. as I ran. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should set it to music. Yeah. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And here to pitch us some ideas. It's comedian Hayley Ellis. Hello. Hello. So we were just talking before we switched the microphones on and your Edinburgh show was inspired by your granddad's hobby. Yeah, he's a pigeon racer. Wow. Yeah. Uh, how long has he raced pigeons for? All his life, I believe. So. Well, not since he was a baby, obviously. That would be weird, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> I think he was like a teenager, though, when he started, and he's 84 now. Wow. Yeah. And so he has sort of pet pigeons, does he? I wouldn't say they were pets, really. <laughs> doesn't take them for a walk. Yeah. Um, Is he sentimental about them? Not re- Well, do you know what? I thought he was, and I did a whole Edinburgh show about how this pigeon got lost and then how he wanted to get it back. And then I went to see him the other day. And he said, oh, I roast, roast, ra- roast? raced some pigeons the other day. And he said, and 10 of them got missing. They've not come home, but it's fine. Let's get some more. <laughs> Does that mean he has like 20 pigeons? And then... He's more than 20. He has about 60. Do they come back to the same? Yeah. So basically they'll go and race them. So they'll drive them to somewhere in like France and then they'll release them. And then it's like the quickest to come home wins like the race. He's a little tempted I'm... to get into pigeon amazed. racing. Maybe you and I. Yeah, let's let's get a pigeon each and see which one comes yeah, back first. Exactly. Go on a road trip to France. So you brought along some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. What's the, what's the first one, Hayley? I have. Um, okay, so I think once a year, all soap operas have to do one episode where nothing goes wrong. So it's just an episode of Emmerdale where they just go about the business, just on the farm, just having a nice drink in the pub. <laughs> There's no crashes or murders. Because they are the multiple disasters, aren't there? Yeah. I mean, Emmerdale's had a plane crash. I think Corrie's had a train crash. They had a tram come off the viaduct. Yeah. yeah. Crash into yeah. the shop. Yeah. Well informed. Do you know my guilty secret, which is I really loved the archers when I was growing up. Really? Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. I li- no. It doesn't surprise you. You see me as a sort of country folk. <laughs> do you think politicians and soap operas is a good combination? What do you mean? Well, you had Tony Blair in the House of Commons. Do you remember he endorsed the Free Deirdre campaign when Deirdre uh, Barlow was... Uh, it was quite yes. early on when he was Prime Minister, I'm pretty yeah. sure. So you're into this idea. Definitely. Of it, because it just makes people feel calm, do you think? Yeah, and just a bit of... Not, something that's just normal. Because, I mean, that many things happen every day on the streets in these soap operas that you just think, just one day, just just nothing. Just I mean, at the risk day. of falling into the trap that Jeff set for me, and I'm just <laughs> sort of now going to walk into it, don't you think some of them are just really depressing? I mean, that's maybe the point about yeah. your non I mean, yeah. I would often, sometimes when I watch those, watch the soaps, I would find myself quite depressed by the end. What Corey will do is they'll have like um, a scene where Audrey cuts the hair the wrong or they style the hair wrong in the salon. Oh, bit of fun. Yeah. And then they'll have a train crash straight after. Yeah. <laughs> so they take away like the fun with a yeah, disaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we'll have that. Um, what else you got, Hayley? Similar to the town of Beaumont in the film Footloose. I think dancing should be banned from politics. Yes. Oh, well, we were talking about Highly relevant, mm. yeah. Ed thinks he's never been caught on camera dancing. Not knowingly. Yeah. Really? I've been caught on camera doing other things. <laughs> uh, I think generally it was sort of owning the embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so. But there's that many memes that are being shared at the minute. It's just overkill. But that's not her fault. Yeah. And do you not just think like all the norms of society have gone out the window when you see the Prime Minister dancing yeah, away yeah. off to the stage? You never see Churchill doing the YMCA, would you? No, that's <laughs> true. Although, you <laughs> know, I'd like maybe, to. Maybe we'd have won the war quicker. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think you uh, could do Gangnam style. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
you know, in a way, it's now people can't make funny jokes about her dancing. Because she's, she's neutralised it. She's yeah. made a joke about the dancing. Yeah, yeah, I guess. And she made a joke about the backdrop. And she made a joke about the coughing fit. Mm. She's got a new scriptwriter, hasn't she? She has got a new <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, remember when Cherie Blair said during a Gordon Brown speech, I think it was in 2006, it was Blair's last conference speech, he's a liar. She was caught on camera saying, Oh, and they got lip readers to say it's what a lie or something. Yeah, yeah. And then Blair said, at least I know she's not going to run off with the bloke next door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in a way, it's sort of disarming, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. All right, no dancing. And did you have more? So I think that there should be headphones that automatically turn the volume down when there's an interesting conversation happening in public. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Because there's nothing worse than me having to physically uh, change the volume and people can see that I'm doing that. So mm. stuff that's happening, you're on, you're on a bus or public transport or somewhere, and then it just automatically lowers it when there's an argument happening. So you can just listen in. Do you join conversations on... Public I love transport. listening in, yeah. Listening in or no, joining in? eavesdropping or joining in? Not joining in, no. Some of the best conversations I have are with people I don't know. Do you keep in touch? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I sort of meet people who then I sort of, yeah, I give them my email. I sort of. You're not giving them your phone number, are you? I'm not giving them my <laughs> yeah, phone number. Yeah. I'm more sparing with my phone number, but I sort of think, you know, some of the most. Because it's particularly on public transport, because you come across people you wouldn't necessarily meet in the normal course of everyday life how do you strike up the conversation well but generally because if it's people who recognize you're me, they'll, usually struck they'll yeah, strike so i was sitting on a train the other day with this guy who did sort of carbon dating of objects with lasers wow you know, i know i mean i thought that wow it's an incredibly interesting mm. conversation is this first class though because he no, had a carbon no, layer no. Standard <laughs> class. Right. promise wow. you promise you he loves it so much when parliament's in reset he just he, he, he goes on a train <laughs> just sits on the northern line going up and down well no i was thinking i would love to you know train journey around the country I've always I've thought about this. You BBC like Two, are you, are you listening? BBC Two, the new Michael Palin. <laughs> but I think yeah. no. Well, I think but I'm less interested in the scenery. I'm more interested in the people. I think the people are the thing, not the. You want to come on a bus in Manchester or a train because yeah. it's very different. I mean, I, I've had some interesting conversations on there. Really? Yeah, usually around um, <laughs> Greg's. Um, there's no uh, nuclear yeah. <laughs> nuclear scientists no. on my trains. I'd love Greg's? that though. I'd love to have a conversation about Greg. Yeah, doing a vegan sausage roll, apparently. Is, is that, that true? That's exciting. Yeah, it is, isn't it? That yeah. is really I've, exciting. I've, since I've been veggie, which is a long time, I've missed the, the unique heartburn you get from a Greg's <laughs> I, I, well, I had a complete disaster this week because I ordered some vegan sausages for my kids and I absolutely hated them. I mean, honestly, you it was You shouldn't real... have told them. No, no, because we, we, we got into eating vegan sausages as part of healthy eating. And the problem was I ordered some new ones and honestly, they were just even sort of swathing it in ketchup. Kids are very just, naturally small C conservative. They, they don't like really change. Are. Yeah. I mean, the sausages did look like turds. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, as I admitted to my wife afterwards, I won't name the brand. Uh, I mean, it, it was really, honestly, it was like tears, sort of, <laughs> seriously. That was just me. You got another idea, Hayley. Sort of delivery, but for compliments. So if you have a bad day at work, you come home, you want to order a bit of takeaway to cheer you up. But you also have the added option of uh, adding an extra compliment onto your delivery. So mm. say you're um, having a bad time in the workplace, you can say, I want them to say something nice about how good I am at my job. Right. And they'll deliver your food and a really nice compliment. So you've got a little box and you've got topics that the compliment could be on. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, w- I would like to be complimented by somebody. Not- I mean, would you have to deliver the food? Could you just order somebody to knock at your door and then compliment you? I don't know if I'd be more creepy. <laughs> just like you've got nice eyes see you later just- I, I do think oh, I went through this phase with my children we're, we're saying you know do something nice for somebody who's not a family member every day mm. that's a lovely write thing. someone a nice letter uh, you know say something nice I don't, don't you think yeah I go through phases of trying to do that yeah. do you yeah yeah I hadn't noticed <laughs> He said anything nice to you today? That's because I consider you to be a family member. (laughs) I've actually been very nice to him about his burgundy shirt, which is very... Autumnal. Autumnal. uh, I've been accused of being a shirt shamer. Yeah, this (laughs) this has come up on the podcast before. Ed can be quite scathing about people's sartorial uh, choices, which is odd given that often you look like you've been dressed by your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now it comes out. But let's get back to the idea, uh, which is about giving people compliments. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think, a snazzy dresser. Yeah, no, I think it's good. I had a conversation with my boyfriend the other day where I said he doesn't give me enough compliments. You said, told him. Yeah, and he said, sometimes you make it very difficult for me, <laughs> um, which is not what I want us to hear, Perhaps really. Let me, let me, you know, send him around here. <laughs> well, he needs to, like, get with the programme. But yeah. to be fair, at the time, I did have spot cream on my face and I had hair wax in my hair. That's, so no, he, I mean, that's no excuse. <laughs> Honestly, he could say, "I love how much care you take of your skin." <laughs> he could, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Haley, um, while, while you're here, what have you got going on? Can people come and see you? Yeah, I, uh, I'm gigging all over at the minute. I'm doing some tour support for Sarah Milliken at the minute as well this year, which is amazing. I've got a website. Can I say that? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, com. The first bit was www.haleyellis.com. Right, right. Yeah, got that. <laughs> <bit>. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. All right, here we are in the outro and we've got to get Ooh, this over and done with because I've got to go. I'm going to see Hamilton tonight. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's exciting. I'm really excited. I've, I've not seen any of his stuff apart from Fatwa the Musical. So uh, I'm, I'm, do you remember from Curb Your Enthusiasm? Yes, it's yeah. John... Lin-Manuel Miranda. Lin-Manuel Miranda, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who's you know very good cameo in Kirby Enthusiasm? Yes, he and is. I hear that Hamilton is even better. People say it's absolutely brilliant. How did you get tickets? I've got, I've got contacts. Yeah, I've got contacts. Yeah. Wow. What can you tell me about Alexander Hamilton as a? Oh, I thought as a fan of American history, you might be able to. No, but I can tell you that as we speak, uh, the Boston Red Sox are doing incredibly well in the American League Championship Series. They are three games to one up in a best of seven series. Hopefully, by the time this comes out, they will be in the World Series, which will be very exciting. Congratulations. Yeah, well, we mustn't be premature. But okay, but, you know, they, they they've got ice in their veins. They couldn't do it without you. No, exactly. All right. I'd like to thank uh, Matt Lawrence and Christine Berry. And thanks to Hayley Ellis for coming on and pitching some ideas. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed wrote the music and the artwork. Was Emily designed. Power. Emily Power. So uh, he, he's been the man with the scourer. He's been the man with the salt. <laughs> These have been reasons to be cheerful. Yeah.